the Media Society Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the fifth Media Society podcast. I'm Paul Blanchard. The format's the same as the previous four. We get two of media's best and brightest round the table, and we talk current media matters. Radio listenership is at a 15-year high, and with help from social media, DJ Nip Grimshaw on Radio 1 has grown his listeners by 700,000 in just three months. How did this strategy work, and will the trend continue? News executives want to include a question time style audience participation in the next election. But critics say that this may open candidates up to heckling and abuse. But could it be worth it if it means getting a wider audience involved in politics? And drones. Is it time to replace intrepid war reporters on the battlefield with drone technology? And yes, this is an actual, real question facing commissioning editors at the moment. Joining us round the table currently is Paul Eastham, Head of Communications for the charity Young Enterprise and former Deputy Political Editor of the Daily Mail, and Holly Sutton, Managing Director of Journalista, a healthcare public relations agency and indeed former journalist. So radio listenership is at a 15-year high. DJs like Nick Grimshaw, who brought in 700,000 new listeners in just three months, are growing their audience with the help of social media. Is this strategy sustainable and will the trend continue? Holly? Uh, the social media question, um, in terms of using that to drive up reader- um, this readership and listenership of radio, um, I think you know you're you're going to people where they are and showing them targeted pieces of information. They can listen to targeted bits, a performer, something that they like. So you can chop into it. You can not only see it when you want to it, you can chop it in half and see just the bit that you want to and focus in on it. Everything's much more immediate. It's much more you're selling, you're advertising it to people constantly through a stream that they watch throughout the day. Um, and people's ability to take on information um, through whether it's a, somebody can link to it on their Facebook feed is phenomenal. Mm. Uh, it's, it's, it's abs- I'm surprised it's only 15% given the following that he has. Um, I can see that just continue to rise. On Twitter. Paul, have your habits changed in terms of listening to the radio over the last few years? Absolutely. Um, I build up a, a bank of programmes on my iPad so that I can catch up with them later. I mean, all the people working in... Media professions, ironically enough, have a bit time poor. So mm. being able to target the things precisely that you want to hear is actually increasing the quality of uh, the, the uh, sort of listening joy and experience. But just going back to the social media point, I mean, as you know, that social media is moving at the speed of light. But within businesses, it's often quite difficult to, to persuade the, uh, if you like, the manage the very senior management that these things are very significant. I mean, they, they'd say we've got to be on Twitter, but they're not quite sure why we, should, we need to be on Twitter. I'd just like to say that with uh, the charity that I work with at the moment, you know, there are a million young people unemployed. And what we do is you give them the chance to do some, run their own business or have uh, some contact with uh, enterprise uh, and find out what their, their sort of hidden, hidden talents are. And we're running a competition at the moment where we give kids a £10 note and say, go away for a month and do something with it. It's incredible. Um, and um, one of the kind of really conundrums is how the hell do you get through to teachers who are astonishingly busy people? Uh, it works out that you, you don't, can't necessarily rely on them reading the local newspaper. You can't necessarily think they're going to respond to an advert. And they may not even be looking at the Facebook feed. But what we did find was that we can reach them through Twitter and the it's becoming a really powerful tool in marketing for organisations, particularly for charities when they've got no money. 
I mean, when I started in PR a few years ago doing social media, it was one of those things that you just ticked a box. You know, it, you did Twitter, as it were. But now I think it's increasingly becoming a platform mm. in its own right, Holly. Would you say that whenever you're putting a strategy together for a client, that Twitter would be front and central part of that? Front and centre of any comms plan has to be the audience and how they want to be reached. And that will always be the case mm. with some audiences, um, predominantly the sort of Twitterati. I think, you know, when you're talking about teachers, you know, it is the source of middle class, people with an opinion, people who are professional, um, people who um, are witty. There's an element of narcissism in most people who are good on Twitter. Um, and actually, as you're starting to see more and more psychological profiles of people who engage in Twitter show, I, I don't think it's you know, a surprise I, I to anybody. I don't read them because I'll probably be one of them and then I'll realise that I'm a psychopath or something. Um, it, it is. It's people who love getting that, you know, it is extrovert. So actually, you need to think, you need, in whatever campaign you're doing, you need to realise you're only going to reach a certain proportion of a type of person, a population, and a self-selecting sort of that population. So mm. in a lot of the campaigns that we do where you're trying to engage hard-to-reach audiences, Twitter just wouldn't, you know, it might be way that I would engage with professionals that were engaging with those people, but it certainly wouldn't be front and centre of any campaign that I'd propose. But Paul, as I say, you um, you work with Young Enterprise. You have one Twitter account, Young Enterprise. How do you kind of segment the audience, as it were? Because there's going to be young people, young achievers following that Twitter, link teachers, business advisors, the media. How do you, you know, if you see, if you put a tweet out, everyone in those audiences is going to see it. So do you deliberately do different tweets for different audiences? Yes, How does we it work? do. We, we, we've, we, although it's one channel, we, we actually produce uh, different material uh, for the different audiences we're after. And it is interesting how that can be done. Um, there, there is another way of segmenting it, and that is get your friends who are on Twitter to, to, to get involved. When I, when I say friends, one of our friends is Sir Richard Branson, who has four Never million followers, Never heard of him. Uh, who was very kind, kind enough to, 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 to tweet a campaign we were doing a, a week ago. And we had an absolutely enormous response. I think we had 91,000 hits on our Facebook page wow. as, as a result. You get quite a big spike then in so, terms of new Twitter followers, etc. So I, thought, I agree with every word that my colleague has said about, about the importance of, of, if you like, making sure you're reaching the right audience with the right medium. It's just becoming very clear that there are some good things you can do with this specific kind of social medium. Although I, you know, I would go back to the very roots of, of, of everything and say what really counts at the end is the content. It's the mm. story. It's, you've got to have a good story to tell and tell it well. And then the, really the platforms are, you, you know, they, they're just, you, you choose from a range of them depending on who, who you want to reach. That's quite right. Mm. News executives want to include a question time style audience participation in the next election. Will this open candidates up to heckling and abuse? Or will it be a valuable tool to engage people who wouldn't otherwise be interested in politics? Paul, you were deputy political editor of the Daily Mail for a, a squillion years, wasn't it? How yes, many a, years was a, it? An immense amount of time, yes. It was, it was nearly 20 years, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, uh, regale us with, uh, with your views on this subject. Well, I, I mean, on the one hand, I, I think that the leaders' debates, uh, as in America, um, have been a good thing in, in one respect, and that is that it puts the uh, leaders on trial, on, on, it, it exposes them to um, uh, explaining the, themselves more cogently than they would have probably on any other platform. And it is, a believe me, it is an extremely difficult test, especially when the others are sort of lining up with you and, and the, the direct comparison can be made. The problem with it, I think, is that we don't have a presidential system in this country. We have a party system and and, and really um, parties express their identities through many and several personalities and inflections of policy. We all know, and Paul, having worked, both of you, having worked with political parties, know that all parties are really coalitions. 
Uh, so there is a danger of homogenizing the message uh, too much uh, if you go for this presidential style of thing. Do I think it's uh, okay for the audience to heckle? Yeah, I think it does. I think it is. I think. I think. I, I, quite honestly, any anything that, that increases the appetite for actual real debate in politics, and I say I'm saying this in a very qualified way, but nevertheless, if 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 the question time format as it does draws an enormous audience, it may indeed also increase participation. So on balance, it's a good thing with those caveats. Did you always feel that politicians were in far too guarded for their own good even when you were doing the job? I think that there were f- few enough uh, opportunities for, for journalists. Uh, I mean, and I, I know that you'll probably think this is a terribly elitist thing to say, but the journalist lobby is, is a better judge of what's going on in, in many respects than, than anybody else. We always used to groan at the, at the poor homework done by members of select committees and their failure to ask the key questions about uh, even to be aware that the questions should be asked. Mm. Uh, and so, uh, you know, putting putting um, the politicians up against journalists is a is a is a pretty good test. Um, and we didn't get enough opportunity to do that. Blair introduced the monthly press conference and that was a demonstration of his extreme self-confidence in that he was, in fact, an, ex- an extraordinary able and fast, fast moving, uh, you know, rhetorical operator, very, very slippery character and, and, and could play the room better than anyone I've, I've ever encountered. But on the whole, um, they should be facing journalists more, more often. Ollie, you've advised politicians in the past. You know, it's difficult enough that they face the media, but would you have them face the public in a kind of question time style format? I'm going to come at this from a slightly different angle. Um and perhaps it's an angle that really needs to be considered. I think one of the biggest problems with politics at the moment is we've got three white men, yet again, of the same age, um, leading parties. And there's absolutely no movement forward on that. In fact, this um, entire, this whole election year, we've taken a massive step back. Um, the Tories led this movement forward to go and bring in lots of young, bright young women. Um, and they gave them, you know, they put them in seats that they could win. They won them, um, and most of them have now handed in their notice and not even lasted a term. A um, mm. And I think when you look at what's happened um, on social media and you look at the depth of the sort of trolling and the horrific things that have been said when you know, we tried to sort of when we tried to get Jane Austen on banknotes, what you're doing is opening up that floor even more so um, to perhaps the sort of really, really gender-led style of questioning. You know, it's absolutely filthy the sort of comments that came through about a um a, one a british gymnast on sky news and Agreed. unfortunately the sorts of people that engage in these sorts of levels of debate come at it from you know they come at it from the privacy um of their twitter handle and they come at it with the sort of misogyny that comes in the same level of narcissism that is bred on twitter um and it, it takes a very small I, I like to believe a small section of society um, and gives them a massive amplified voice against women. You against think women, women are particularly I, I prone think to it, this. And that is the one thing that I would fear from this style okay. of debate. And I think, in some ways, what you're doing is amplifying that archaic style of question time, which every time I listen to it just makes me long to go back to the European Parliament, where actually you had a much more... There's Civil. lots of things that don't make me long to go back to the European Parliament, apart from the expenses. Um, <laughs> and, and actually, it's a much more civil style of debate. It's a much more equal, egalitarian, um, rather than posturing, bully boy tactics, witty remarks and snappiness that actually I think isn't conducive to the way women normally talk to each other. We don't talk to ourselves in the same, you know, I'm not one for making mass gender stereotypes at all. I think they're quite harmful, but 
we don't talk in banter and men talk too more. So Parliament has taken on this banterous style approach. So has Twitter um, and it can become very toxic. So I think I would be re- I would be absolutely reticent of doing moving forwards towards this, mm. even though I think it's positive for mm. democracy because of that reason. And okay. I think more women in Parliament is the number one thing we can do to increase representation. Agreed. Could I, I mean, I, I agree with what, what Holly said, but um, th- I think there's another aspect to it, which is uh, if there's one thing that I think I learned while I was in Parliament was was the the great problem with, with, with Parliament is is the, the way it's organised in terms of power, and that is the whip system uh, is the fundamental part of it, which prevents change taking place. What that means is... New members of Parliament are warned that if they don't vote with the government or with with the Prime Minister, they won't have a career. And believe me, that's a terrifying threat and and is very effective. So as a result, you get people voting en masse for wars they don't really support. Mm. We all know, don't we, Paul, that the Labour Party, all the MPs, did not support the war in Iraq but they voted for it. And I think the other the other problem with that's sort of allied to this the whip system is that it's very in, command and control, isn't in the, it? In the system that we've got, if you get if you command a majority in Parliament, in other words, if you win an adequate majority, which is generally what's happened historically, we, we don't really have a democracy in the in the sort of pure sense. It's Parliament as a rubber stamp for the executive. What we really have is an elective dictatorship, as I think that the wise old parliamentary theorists have put it. <laughs> mm. I, but it's more than a theory. Once the voters have been given their their shot, that's essentially it. One of the reasons why there's not much movement on some of these things is because it's not being decided by a, a very large electorate. These questions are, bit, are being controlled by a very small group of people. So why why haven't the media brought that to the attention of the electorate then? Do you think that it's just in their interest as well to sell newspapers and to be quite short-term in their uh, portrayal of, you know, Tony Blair's battle du jour? I mean, I remember when I worked at Parliament... Uh, there was a uh, some kind of vote on foundation hospitals, and at no point did the media actually cover the the the, the arguments for and against mm. foundation hospitals per se. It was Blair battles backbenchers, and is he going to win the vote? Well, you're right. Uh, and there was all these incredibly well, animated graphics of Blair. Well, and, uh, if you, I'm sure if you went to the uh, Economist of that period and looked, you'd probably find an article about the fundamentals. But you're right. Mm. The the, the the daily newspapers do a definition about the here and now, and, and frankly, the speed of the media is much faster now than it was. You know, to well, the detriment I, when I, of political debate. Yes, of course, yeah. and accuracy, and 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 depth, and and reflection, and never and wrong for long, as Sky used to say. Mm. <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. But but now every paper's like that because you come back from the debate, you have to write a snap to go out probably as a tweet or something, and then then and then a first take to go onto the website, and then only later on are you given the chance to sort of think about what the story should be for the next day's paper. So in terms of the debate that you're saying, which I think is very fair, you know, that, that's the way that the, the parliament is constructed. It's very, very hierarchical. Um, it's quite a sort of, it, you know, it's a dictatorship and it's who you elect in, I suppose. Well, I just think it's, a, it, it, what I'm saying is it's, it's, a, it's a bastion against change. So, you know, women have found it hard to build power within Parliament because the structure is against that happening. Do you think you can draw, through doing this sort of style of debate, where actually you open it up to more social media, more people engaging, do you think it will actually increase the public's engagement with politicians? It seems to be less, um, you know, glass, it seems to be sort of less something you can look in but they can't hear you do you think well, one one thing i have noticed is this 38 the 38 degrees uh, yeah. campaign and things like that yeah um and I, you can you can criticize that for being terribly middle class and terribly single issue and all that 
But I do know that the politicians are pretty intimidated by getting a, a petition of a half a million people on their breakfast you yeah. know, mat. There are some aspects of, of, of the, if you like, the new media, which are coming into politics, which are very, very interesting. But yeah. on the other hand, you're sort of appealing to the wisdom of crowds and saying, you know, the, the sanity of the great mass of the people comes forward. And in a democratic system, in a sense, we're relying on the wisdom of crowds to sort of chuck out the wrong government and put in the, the, the right one. And, and personally, I prefer that system. So, so Churchill, I, I, of course, I mean, famously words, said that the greatest argument against democracy is a five-minute conversation with the average voter. Yeah, <laughs> and well, I do actually possibly, agree with him, having yeah, been on the stump. I, I agree that a discussion with an individual who might be a troll might be disheartening. I think a, a discussion with the public in general is remarkably refreshing. Well, we'll just before I'm we just, move on, I'll just let just, Holly come back on that. So, one, is Twitter the mob, or is it the? Uh, it is absolutely the sage both. Of, and I think it's you know, if you look at it the same way that people used to protest, if you went and pulled one person off and you did the pre-qualifying checks, they might have something really sentient to say. If you go and just look on what the mob is doing, so that's why I think you know you've got to be careful when you're looking at Twitter. Don't just use some sort of mass sentiment analysis on thousands of people. Um, Look and pre-qualify, it's, but it is a great way of finding out about what a pre-qualified individual um, and pull them out and really think about the qualitative information you mm. can find on Twitter. Indeed. Major media outlets are now using drone technology to assist in reporting where conditions are too dangerous for journalists. Apparently the machines are too hard to control, though, and countries like the US and Russia have put restrictions on their use due to privacy concerns. Paul, do you think that we should be sending drones to cover these kind of uh, problems abroad rather than real reporters? Well, when I first read this, I, the, it, it struck me as a bit of a joke, to be honest, and I thought it had been selected that, that way, but I'll address it seriously <laughs> in a sec. But, I mean, serious, the, sadly. I, the governments would love to have unmanned drones covering politics, you know, well, you know, <laughs> driverless, you know, uh, uh, completely, you know, neutered uh, people without any judgment who are just prepared to sort of pick up what they see through, the, through their lens and report it. That's exactly what the governments would like. So um, um, I, I'm not sure I'm very keen on the unmanned, unintelligent, un, unrational, unanalyzing, uh, you know, factor at any point in journalism. Um, and I'm very worried about um, uh, drones as, as a policy on the whole, because the sense of detaching the human element from the murder of the civilians or whatever's going on. I realise I'm burlesquing this slightly because it's not what the <laughs> point point is, but I don't I just don't like the remoteness being brought into into the concept of, of wars. And um, that's that's certainly where, where America's been going with mm. its uh, Mad obsession with with te bringing technology into into uh, international uh, relations. Holly, you work in public relations. Do you ever wish that instead of phoning a journalist to pitch a story, that actually you just phone some kind of journalist bot that said press one to send your press release, and then they they make a decision? I think that's a press association, isn't it? Oh, that's... <laughs> <laughs> some of those people are my best friends. <laughs> very good, very good. I know. It's just I think you know that Jake, but I think about the press stations because we can get very dehumanised by what we do mm. every day. Um, and I think it's, you know, it's increasingly hard um, when an organisation uh, such as the press stations that means such a massive amount of, um, you know, press cut clippings and press, you know, news releases and things like that to establish that personal relationship that 
that makes um, news so good and well, just, so hard. Just I to think go back to the, the yeah. drones point, though, I mean, there are situations where if you're uh, a commissioning editor on a news channel that you don't want to send Kate AD into a certain specific situation physically because it's too dangerous. I mean, wouldn't it be better to get some pictures rather than none at all? I think it's it's got to be, I think like with everything, you know, you use, um, you know, within public relations now, you have to use a whole variety of tools and techniques. You know, you try the... Twitter, you try, you know, you trying for a personal relationship. You really, you know, take the time to understand the bigger picture. And I think, in some ways, um, you know, drones come into that. You know, we've had some absolute horrific atrocities happening um, within parts of the world that people just can't get to. You know, within parts of Syria, um, within the riots within Egypt, um, you know, it was very hard to cover that from a bigger picture way. It's perhaps more subtle than sending a big helicopter with a sky crew um, dangling over the top and doing things and perhaps it will pick up pictures and insights but you know I completely understand um, your opinion in terms of it, that has to be I think it has to have that analysis and quality of what a journalist can bring to it um, but very much I think it's in the same way that you might have satellite pictures and apply that analysis to it mm. surely that's what well, drones the, are doing. The fundamental problem is if you detach the viewer if you like, the, the the perceiver from the event, you don't actually know what the image means. Um, I remember receiving uh, pictures of the first bombing in the first Gulf War, um, the, the craters and various... You, but because you didn't know where it was taken exactly and what you were really supposed to be looking at and who lived there and or anything about the, the consequences, you, you couldn't really assess what it was, but I was still obliged to write mm. about it. But the, But... I mean, I think if you think back to the telling images of of, of media history, you know, the girl running out of the, of the, the woods in South yeah. with, after the napalm attack, yeah. you know, that the validity of that picture doesn't just come from the fact that the image is striking, but it's that it, the photographer took it. Mm. And, and, and the nonchalance mm. of the soldiers surrounding her. Is it, yeah. you know, but it's terribly important that the less. observer is there. I mean, I, I don't completely agree with the idea that, you know, with the I am a camera sort of... Uh, point of view of journalism I, I never did it that way mm. I don't I, I think any, all good journalism you know there's a kind of willing suspension of disbelief between you and the reader you go in and they know you're doing it they know you're writing about it and you observe a certain number of conventions about telling the truth but at the same time it's still a human being reporting on what happened and and that is the that's the that's really what journalism is it's nothing to do with remote probes going into distant places mm. and f- sending back images completely denuded of their context. I think that's I, that's a very, very, very well-made point. And I think you know, I 100% agree with that. And I see the cuts coming down on journalism. You were talking previously about that sort of depth of analysis in the mail and actually some of the um, reasons why you know, that have been touted why the Telegraph um, editor was forced to stand down was because they want to move to a more BuzzFeed um, sort of level of reporting. Listicles. and and journalism. It's just an absolute dumbing down. Um, And I think perhaps, you know, this is that measure of dumbing down, cost-cutting, going into where it's, you know, where actually that face-to-face journalism, that emotive reporting that struck such a phenomenal chord and changed you know, UN public opinion around Syria could not have been done by a drone. And I think if one press agency starts using drones, then it starts to create more normality across the board. Um, and it could be, you know, it could it, it would spark an absolute crisis in our levels of understanding and emotional empathy with some people who need it most across the world. Um, mm. And, you know, I think for, for that reason, 
I would fundamentally disagree with it and I don't think it's anything to do with privacy. Um, I think it's your person-to-person way of relating well, what is, what, 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 what is journalism in the end? I mean, I know this sounds... I know I get a horse laugh of some of the people listening no, to the podcast here. But it's about truth-telling. I always thought it was. I always try to do my job that way. You might find that surprising. Um, I know, well, given the brickbats that are thrown at the mail every day. But without wanting to sound like a kind of A-level debate moderator, who's truth? Well, that's all right. I I would then appeal to this concept of the willing suspension of disbelief. You ask the reader to give you their trust, and then you pay back on that trust. Is it more than that, though? Because if you buy a copy of The Guardian, you expect expect a lens through which they view the world. If I could, you know, I can clearly see if I buy The Telegraph, The Guardian, or The Times. It's the same story, but there's a a quite a fundamentally different spin. Yes, but we all, that's why I talk about this, this, this contract with the readers. The readers will buy the product that most fits their worldview. I feel most comfortable with the paper that I buy every day, it wouldn't necessarily be the Daily Mail, as a matter of fact, but I know a lot of people... What are is it? Come and tell us. No, no. I wasn't Ab- interested until you received to tell us, abs- and I'm I desperate know, to know. Yeah, the, I, I, I mean, I read The Guardian, partly... Part, oh, get part, out. Partly because, <laughs> partly because um, I, I find it invests, it invests in journalism. I'm a and closet a, Guardian and reader, it's, too. It's a better value, but it's a better value package. package. But, the, the, but I, what I'm really saying is, yes, every paper has its ideology, and that is part of the deal that the, 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 the buyer has with it. Mm. Are you okay, like me, that, though? Do you read The Guardian every day, but you secretly hate all Guardian readers? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I, I'm, I'm very critical <laughs> of, all, of all of it. And, and actually, I find The Guardian's poorly written at times and, and difficult to understand. From a political point of view, it's nearer the sort of target area that I'm interested in. Ollie, do you read a paper still? And if you do, I which do. one is it? I read The Times every day um, and I read it because I'm very short of time and I can't always wait until the fifth paragraph to find out what the story's about. <laughs> um, so, but, you know, in terms of a political point of view, I'm very much more aligned with The Guardian. But actually, I find that it's... Um, I read Preaching. I, 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 no, I don't mind the preachiness. Um, I, re- I, just, I read it on my iPad um, and the Guardian app is, I, I can't quite work it out. Um, it's terrible, isn't it? It's yeah. got less than the website. Uh, absolutely. Uh, that's what I don't um, understand. Whereas if yeah, the Times app is just like the paper, the it pages is, scroll. Yes. Um, I, can take, I can take clippings of the pages. I can send them over to my team. I can send them to my clients. Um, and actually, I just find the product fantastic. Absolutely right. You're dead on there when you say that the Times has got has cracked something as far as the iPad presentation is concerned, which is really good. I'm not sure about the actual printed version of the paper. Mm. I don't think it ever settled down in the tabloid yeah, format. But, um, I mean, I, th- I think what I, what I would say is that one of the th- awful things that's happened in journalism is the accountants have taken over. Yeah. And it, the journalists are not in charge. And a lot of management are going to murder their newspapers if they don't invest in journalism can I just say that? Go with a capital J. <laughs> Journalism is what sells newspapers. Mm. At the end of the day, everyone will realise that content is king and we have to get back there. So stop sacking journalists and s- stop hiring IT professionals. Well, that's quite a manifesto. <laughs> so, Paul, just, just finally, because we've only got a few minutes left of the tape, we talked earlier about kind of establishing a narrative. How do you do that, you know, in your job? Because clearly many people would see Young Enterprise, the charity with which you're head of communications, is a kind of, you know, a lot of people would misperceive it as a kind of middle class going on, which helps these middle class kids run the school tuck shop. And you, when we were chatting earlier off air, you were saying, actually, we have a million young people that aren't in education, employment or training. And how can we inspire those people to equip? So how do you do that uh, through cynical media? It's probably the fact that the Young Enterprise failed for a long time to actually tell the story. 
um, it, it held it had one p- big popular competition, and 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 uh, after a lot of rounds, some usually very well provided schools would tend to win. And as but as a matter of fact, eighty percent, eighty seven percent of the two hundred and fifty thousand kids who do Young Enterprise every year go to state schools. So we just fail to tell our story properly. Yes, there's a million un- young unemployed kids, and the problem is that that's a stubborn lump. That's you know. The more months go past, the less chance there is for those guys. So what we do is we give, before that happens to people, we give them the chance in school to get some relevant experience. That's business type experience. In many cases, like 25,000 kids this year running their own firms for a year. They're real companies. They've got real business people alongside them. They come out of that and they go into an interview with an employer and they're killer. They're killers. They'll get jobs because they've had relevant experience. That's what we do. So developing the narrative is all about explaining to people we're not quite what we've allowed ourselves to appear to be. And we did run a campaign called Save a Lost Generation with some very bleak images about what's going to happen. How was it received? Well, I mean, it was directed at corporate social responsibility people. It wasn't a public campaign. Budget holders. We literally mm. put it in the yeah. foyers of the big, the top 500 companies around wow. the UK. And it ran on digital billboards. Wow. And, and I can't necessarily name all of the companies that responded to that. But let's put it this way. We went from a deficit situation to something which is a lot better than that uh, as a result of that campaign and a couple of other things that we've done, which is, includes this great fun giving people a tenor and of course, we're now going into into cahoots with Richard Branson and uh, the government, and we're going to do something called the Fiver. The tenors for secondary schools, the Fivers for primary schools, very simple, but it's extremely popular, and it's going it's uh, going great guns. And so we, we what we need is companies out there to support us, and um, for I suppose the media to, to to sort of grasp the fact we're by far the largest and most effective organisation giving kids a real chance of getting a job. Final quick question then that I'll come to you, Paul, on first is clearly you're quite animated there about your job, quite passionate. Um, you used to be a journalist, you're now on the other side of the fence. I don't know whether it's poacher turn game geeker or the other way around, but uh, you know, you've done both jobs. Which would you say is best? Oh, I miss, I'm, I miss journalism uh, every day from one res- in one respect, and that is having the platform to do the analysis and tell the truth. I mean, I know it sounds incredibly priggish and everything, but it was a lot of fun telling people a story they didn't know. Especially if it was an important one. Ollie, you used to be a journalist, <laughs> and now you're a, a head of a burgeoning PR empire in the healthcare industry. What's uh, what's been best for you? I miss being a journalist every single day for the first four years. That I wasn't a journalist. Um, I found it really painful. Um, but now, but whilst I was in it, um, no one, you know, and never in any way got sort of to the your heady heights. But um, I think you know when you're in it, I felt sometimes like I was a um, like I was a carpenter. So I would go in every day. I'd carve a piece of wood. I put that, um, you know, item out on the treadmill, and I'd I'd keep going. And I'd have to come in the next day and do the same Start thing again. over and over again. And I didn't. I never was at the point where I um, was an editor, so I didn't really have much strategic direction um, over the magazine or and how we develop. So actually, what I love in what I do now is the strategy, and I'm able to. Um, probably in some ways affect a much, much bigger change. Um, and, it, you know, it, I, before I was tactical and I got to tell people new stories, but I never got to really follow them through and see the impact that they did. But nowadays in my job, um, I've, I've, I've stayed with clients long enough where I can sort of start to see, 
changes in engagement with people, behavioural change. Um, you know, sometimes you see sort of in some campaigns that we do around hospitals, you see re- um, reductions in mortality, new ways of clinical working. Real benefit. And I feel that is really exciting. Do you me. think all all people starting out on a journalism career now have to consider the realistic likelihood that they might end up in PR? Do you think that's a realistic outcome now? I think it's a. I think it was where you kind of felt that you'd end up ten years ago. Um, I think now there's much more fluidity about PR into journalism, journalism into PR. Somebody that worked with me for four years came in on an internship. Um, he's now a health reporter working out in Beijing. Ah, um, so it goes both ways. I think it's mm. much more fluid. Wow, you make me want to be a PR person when you say, <laughs> when you speak so eloquently and so commandingly incredibly about that. So at this point, I would normally uh, let people, uh, let our listeners know your Twitter handles and so on, how people can get in touch. So Holly, we'll start with you. Tell us, if anyone's interested to get in touch, how would they do so and how do they Please follow you on Twitter? Please do get in, like, um, in touch. We're, I'm at, at Holly Online, H-O-L-L-Y. O-N-L-I-N-E, a bit retro, but I have had <laughs> that handle for quite a while. Um, and um, if you want to get in touch with Journalista, where Journalista Limited um, is our Twitter handle. And our website is www.journalista.co.uk. Paul? Well, I go only under the handle of at Young Enterprise, one word. Uh, and our website is um, all those Ws, young-enterprise.org. And you can follow me on Twitter at Paul W.R. Blanchard, but most importantly, follow the Media Society on Twitter at The Media Society. You can go to our website at themediasociety.com and leave your email address so that you can subscribe to notifications of all our amazing events, debates and just general gubbins that we send out. And crucially, you can go to themediasociety.com forward slash join to join us because you get a whole host of benefits, access to the great and the good and cutting edge thought leadership, it says here. So do consider joining us. We're an amazing organisation and you would love it. Until next time, thank you for listening to the Media Society podcast. I've been Paul Blanchard. See you next time. A Big Things Media Production. Big Things!